0: Amen. Thank you. That was beautiful. We're continuing our series this morning, for the book of Philippians. This morning we'll be in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 6 through 8. It's printed for you in total in the ESV in your bulletins. Boys and girls, make sure you have your bulletin as well. You have your own translation of the text in there. So you can follow along with us. Before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. So now, Father God, as we come before your word, we ask, Lord, with enthusiasm and joy that you would open this text up to us. Give us your truth in Christ yet again. Help us to know him, be conformed to him, both individually and as as a church, Lord. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin today by uh, showing you a picture that I found recently in someone's bathroom at this church. They're not here this morning, so I won't tell you who they are, but I love that picture. You guys see that? Right? I love that. Remember, as far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. Now, it's funny, right? They all chuckled because we all got family issues, right? Well, I'm sorry. You all have, obviously, as a pastor, my family is perfect. We have never have any issues. So I, I know, right? We're great, but y'all ha- have family problems. You just wish you could have a pastor's family so they have no problems because our children are born. You know, their first words are yes, ma'am, and yes, sir. You know, you know they don't know how to disobey. It's, a, it's awesome. But you y'alls do, I know. And so we have to have these signs because people think that we're one way, we're really another, but we've got we to present this. We're nice and, and we're normal. I hope you know, by the way, it should be pretty obvious because laying the sarcasm on pretty thick. I'm just kidding about the pastor's family, right? Okay, so anyway, we we got family issues, right? I mean, we at least all have that one uncle or maybe that brother-in-law we try to keep behind the scenes. No one knows. But you know what? Church is like that too, isn't it? Like we could change that sign, and we didn't. I don't have it. I, if I had the Photoshop skills, I would have. We could change that say, As far as everybody knows, as far as the visitors know, we're a nice, normal church, right? Because there's this idea that people have of the ideal, perfect church, what, what it should be. And of course, as soon as you join it, you ruin that picture. But everybody still has that picture of what it should be. But it's false, right? Because the churches have trubs, don't they? They got problems because. They got people. Well, guess what? So too, this Philippian church. This, this church had problems. We're going to find out more about those as it comes, but Paul's kind of working into this. There's some situations in this church. If you remember where we've been in the introduction to Philippians, Paul just overflowed with joy for their partnership, their fellowship together in Christ. But joy is fragile, isn't it? Doubts and fears constantly assault our joy, don't they? And so the problems in the church also try to steal our joy. And so we saw last week to, to protect our joy, God has given us each other into a partnership, into a, a fellowship, into a, a community And that continues today in verses 6 through 8. I want to give you a sentence or a theme of the sermon today to help you remember this. You can use this at family worship over lunch to remember the sermon. Maybe if you're sitting in your car this week, you can remember this. Here's what we're going to talk about today. When God makes his family a team, it's normal for us to be crazy about each other. Let's look at that here. see what Paul's doing with that. Look with me, if you would, at verses 6 through 8. Christ Jesus. Oh, this is God's Word. So let's jump in and see what's going on here. Paul starts out, he's he's writing to a church, really with growing pains. This church is about 12 years old, approximately at this point. And they're not new, they started to have traditions, they start to have, well, this is the way we do things here at Philippi, and so that kind of new church excitement, that church plant zeal that many of you are familiar with, kind of overlooks minor things, and that's not important, let's just get this done, well, that's gone once something becomes institutionalized, Right? And minor things become big things, which become conflicts, and so gospel can't go forward because we've got this conflict about, no, no, I want this brand construction paper, and she wants this brand construction paper, and Session, you better fix it, right? That's the problems of institutionalization. They're happening here at this little church plant that's now got trouble. And so, this conflict in the congregation, and Paul is not there. And you'll notice when he writes this, he's not upset. He's not stressed out. He's not bothered by the fact that he's not there to fix it. He's not worried, is he? He's not fearful. His first words are what? I am confident. I am sure. I have peace. Why? Because I'm not there, but you know what? I am sure that God will see to your spiritual care. He wants the best for them, but he's in a prison in Rome, remember? He may never see them again, but he has peace because it's not his presence, but it's God's promise that's going to hold that church together and overcome their problems. God guarantees their best. God will bring it to completion. Oh, it's a great great hope there for us if we have eyes to see it you know in a couple months we're gonna have some kids some students leaving home high school is over it's time for them to go off and start their their life and the parents who have peace about that are those who entrust them to God say he'll take care of them he'll bring it to completion And those Christian parents who are worried and anxious and biting their nails and can't seem to handle it, you haven't entrusted your child to God yet, have you? You can't be confident. You can't be sure because you're not sure that God will complete it. You need to entrust your kids to God. But it also applies to all of us. Verse 6 really is the key to being the really calm collected stable people we all act like we are right not the person inside of us who's constantly scared about everything but the actual stable person on the outside we project if you really want to be that person you know a nice normal family type person verse six is the key because peace comes by recognizing that God will accomplish the good that he begins Let me say that again. You want peace? Peace comes by recognizing that God's going to accomplish. He's going to fulfill. He's going to complete the good that he begins. It's not up to you to make sure that good happens. I mean, how often, especially young people, do we feel this pressure to make our life count for something, to justify our existence by doing something radical and amazing, right? Oh, young people, don't fall for that. I just want to tell you a secret. That drive is the source of the quiet desperation of many of your parents and their friends. Because, see, the Scriptures call us to ordinary, mundane faithfulness. The Scriptures call us to being faithful in your family, faithful at work, faithful in your church, faithful to your country. And then watching God bring your faithfulness all to some perfect project for his glory. Not in us doing something radical. You want to be radical? Then go be a good husband, wife, employee, citizen. What does the scriptures say? But see, to do that, you have to be confident that God's going to do something great through your work. I just want to ask you, dear flock, are you confident are you sure that God will complete what he's doing in you? Or how often do we try to be our own good work? You know, we try to have peace from our own efforts, our own accomplishments. We, we try to be our own good work and bring it to completion ourselves, And it's just exhausting, isn't it? See the peace that is available through God's promise here. He begins, he maintains, and he completes the good in your life. Oh, and let the hope of that promise just wash over you. God begins the good work in your life. God maintains the good in your life. God completes the good work in your life. And that can bring you peace and give you hope. See, God, Paul is... Hopeful and at peace about this church because he's confident in the power and the promise of God. And so I ask you again, Christians, do you have confidence in the power of God in your life? Or are we Christians just as petty and anxious and fearful as non-Christians? Now, it's such a huge question. Boys and girls, I don't want you to miss this, so would you look with me at your verse 6. So you can, I want you to understand this. Here's how we translate it for you. Oh, it's so good to know that our God didn't just start His joyful work in y'all. He will also make sure to finish what He's making each of you into through Jesus. Isn't that great, boys and girls? See, when you believe in Jesus, He starts something so cool in your life. And he promises that he'll finish it too. He won't just start it. Isn't that a great thing to know? So even when you get in trouble, even when you make your mom cry, God promises he's got your back. He will finish the cool stuff he's doing in your life. Isn't that a great promise? And I know for the rest of you, it sounds simple when I put it that way. But Let me ask you something. If you don't know Christ as Lord, wouldn't you like for God to have your back? Look into your heart. Has God begun a good work in you? Would you like him to? You can be part of God's family. That's what verse 6 is really getting at. The good work that God has begun is this gospel partnership from verse 5. Those who are partners in Christ, we have this connection together that our lives are actually, we're closer than relatives. We're closer than the best of friends because we're bound together in Christ into this new community, and God calls us his family. And as a family, we don't have to make it in this life by our own efforts. Oh, it's such good news if we we have the ears to hear it. I want you to see how someone else puts it who's smarter than I am. Paul Tripp says it this way. It's such a great way to put it. He says this, says, It's vital that we remember that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't just address your need for past forgiveness or your need for future hope, but it addresses everything you face in the place where God has positioned you right here, right now. See, God's grace is for you today. What he has begun, he will complete in you. And it's such a peaceful thought to have because when God calls his family, he then completes his family. And then once God makes us into a family, guess what? God's family is normal, just just like yours. Look with me at verse 7. Paul says this. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That verse starts out sort of weird, actually, if you think about it. Paul has to justify his feelings for them. Perhaps there's some question about his connection to him at this point. I'm not really sure, but you can kind of see, can't you, in your mind, the missions committee of the Philippians church is is trying to figure out what to do here, and, you know, as faith promise starts to get down and they have to make some cuts, you know which missionaries tend to get cut first. Well, those with whom there's no real relationship, right? If If we haven't heard from you in years, you're probably going to get cut first. It had been a long time since they'd heard from Paul. Perhaps they think he only cares about their money. Maybe there is some sort of conflict. You know, after all, he's not the pastor anymore, and he's in prison. Should we be sending money to a prisoner? I mean, can't you just hear that missions committee meeting? I would not want to be moderating that one, right? We're supposed to be supporting a guy in jail? How's he going to do his mission from jail? Are you kidding me? Now, Paul's situation was a bit unique in jail. The way, if you were waiting to see Caesar, it was, and you weren't, and you were kind of there because you appealed yourself as opposed to being arrested to do it. Um, it's a little different situation. Paul actually doesn't say the word imprisonment here. He says the word chains because that's really what's going on here. He was in a rented house, paid for at his expense. He could receive visitors, which we see at the very end of Acts. He's receiving visitors constantly, but he was chained to a guard. 24-7. 24-7. Now the guard got the chain on shifts. Paul always had the chain on. So no privacy, no freedom of movement. He couldn't leave. Paul hadn't shared the gospel in a synagogue or in a marketplace in probably at least two years by the point he, he writes Philippians. Questions about his ministry are kind of legitimate at this point, if that's what's going on. So he has to justify himself. And so in response, Paul says their support, their partnership has been gospel ministry. Paul has been presenting the gospel to every guard, every visitor, and every official as he works his way up the chain to Caesar himself. And eventually, he will share the gospel with Caesar so Paul encourages him. He says, look, man, my chains have been used for the gospel. And so they didn't abandon him in spite of the stigma of him being in prison because they're a family in Christ. They're partners in grace. And like, yeah, we're a family. We got one of our, one of our guys is in jail. but We love him anyway. See, that partnership was a source of joy. It was a source of hope for them, even in the midst of their church challenges and conflicts. Let me ask you something. Are there challenges for our church? Are there any conflicts, Trinity? Of course there are. That's part of being a normal family, right? I mean, we've all thought. I know you have. It's okay. It's probably about me a lot. He's a pain in the neck, but we love him. He's ours. He's family. She really gets on my nerves, but, you know, he's part of the church. What are you going to do? And by the way, if you've never thought that, you're probably the pain in the neck everybody else is talking about. Just, just, just saying, just saying. <laughs> but that's church, isn't it? We all get on everybody's nerves. We have different opinions. We don't always get along, but we love the mess out of each other because of the gospel in our lives. That's what Paul is saying here. That's a real, normal church. You know, last week I said the best way for us to mess up Orangeburg for the gospel, if you remember, was to flaunt our joy well here's another way you want to mess up Orangeburg for the gospel love each other like family even when it's hard even when it takes time the community will notice and the community will ask what in the world is wrong with those trinity people they just love the mess out of each other i mean she goes to that church and they love her her i know right him I mean, of course, people don't talk that way. But if they did talk that way, maybe that might, they might say that. Because deep down, they would wish that they were part of a community that loved them like that. Because we were made to be in a community like the church. And that's who we should be. <laughs> Boys and girls, look with me at verse 7. Here's how I want you to understand this. Here's what Paul is really saying. He says this. He says, It's normal that y'all are like family to me since we are a team in grace. It's like you are with me as I defend and share the gospel. So boys and girls, you know, it's, it's recess at school. Don't you like to get picked for the team when they, when they choose sides? Don't you like to get picked for the team early, right? Well, the Bible says that God's picked us for a team together and that we help each other along Even in the hard things, we help each other. Because of God's grace, we're a team together, and we're going to win together. And that kind of love makes us a different sort of family. We're not a normal family. In fact, verse 8 says that that kind of love makes us a crazy family. Look with me at verse 8. It says this, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul yearns for God's people. Paul yearns for the family of the church. It's it's a pastoral desire. It's it's very similar to a parental desire. It's a combination of of wanting the best, of of wanting to protect. But at the same time, knowing that difficulty and trial leads to growth, and, and then, but wanting to, them to flourish and to soar in Christ and to be at peace and to be It's all these desires. Paul says, I have all that for you in God's grace. But it's not just Paul who feels that way. And this is what make, makes verse 8 so amazing. About, gosh, 12, 11 years ago, we only had one child. And we were in Colorado, and Nikki and Shaley had to go on to Memphis for a a trip we were taking, and I had to stay and work because I didn't have enough vacation time, so I had to work a few extra days, and then I could come out to see them. And I had a friend with me when we we drove out from Colorado Springs to Memphis, and um, this was the first time as a young father that I had ever been separated from Shaley. And it was weird. I remember thinking, I used to, I love flying on airplanes by myself and taking trips and doing conferences and attending conferences. All of a sudden, this little invader comes in my life without my permission and just takes part of my heart and now I can't stand to be away from her. And I was not a big fan of that, actually. I liked my independence and so all of a sudden, I just had this intense, incredible yearning to be back with my little girl. And so, this 18 hour drive, we take off after work and the plan is you know, if you drive all night, you have breakfast in Texarkana and you can be in Memphis, usually right after lunch. You can do it, let's go. So I drive, we take the southern route through Kansas which is a little quicker and right outside of Dodge City, Kansas, we switch drivers. We pull off this industrial part. it's like two o'clock in the morning. We switch drivers, We're in a Ford Explorer. I go in the back, we had it laid out and I go to sleep. Get up. We're almost to the Oklahoma border, so we and left long time away from Dodge City, Kansas. And we pull over to get gas, and my friend Michael, wallet, it's gone, wallet's gone. He had it just last night, when we had dinner, and he goes, the only time I've been out of the vehicle is when we switched drivers. It's, it's got to be on the ground out there. I'm like, we got a double bracket. So we had to double back, go out there. I mean, praise the Lord. We drive there. There it is. Get the wallet. Turn around. So now we're like six hours delayed. So we go through. We get to go, all the stuff. We get to Little Rock. And every car in the planet is trying to get from Little Rock to Memphis. And so it is a three-hour drive turns into an eight-hour drive because there was, there was road construction or I don't know, but something bad was happening. It was terrible. So this 18-hour trip turns into like a 27-hour ordeal. And I am just a hot mess at the end of it wanting to see my little girl. I had this yearning and this burning desire. I was actually sick to my stomach I wanted to see her so bad. That's yearning this in the gut pain to be with my daughter is yearning and paul feels that kind of thing for god's people because that's the kind of affection jesus has for his church what are you telling me pastor sean that god has this in your gut hurts desire for his people yeah he does And I'm not stretching it at all. Actually, the word for affection there in verse 8, everybody look at verse 8. The word for affection there is the word used for bowels, for guts. In context, it's this idea of a gut-wrenching emotional upheaval. God's word says that Jesus Christ has this gut-wrenching yearning for you. the kind of burning that made me sick to my stomach to see my little girl as a father absolutely pales in comparison to the gut-wrenching yearning your Savior has for His bride. Oh, it's so amazing. If only our, if only our fearful, doubting hearts would believe that. How amazing would that be? See, but the text doesn't leave it there. Paul says... We should feel that way about each other. Not just Jesus feels that way about us. We should feel that way about each other. Which is kind of radical, weird, even a little bit crazy, right? That's going to make us not a nice, normal church. We're going to be that weird church in town that loves each other. Because we're to yearn for each other like this. Why? Is it just because we're all such great people in Jesus? No. It's because God is with His people when they are gathered together God is present in a special way that He's not present any other time. It's not the same when we're not together. We actually, in a way, we get more of God when we're together than we do when we're not. Which is kind of crazy because it's completely opposite to the consumer mentality culture that we all swim in, isn't it? You know, the attitude that we come to church to, quote, get something or we, we have to be entertained by the service where the focus is on the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I, right? That, that's not what this is saying. This is saying, no, actually, God's presence is there in a special way and you should yearn to come not just to be with God that way, but your presence also gives that to your brothers and sisters. This is a desire to come and give instead of a desire to get. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? And that's the crazy church that Paul envisions we could be. The kind of crazy, loving each other, yearning church your session prays for us to be. Because that is a healthy, good longing. But there's a bad kind of yearning. There's a bad kind of longing as well. You and I were created with a yearning for God in our hearts, a yearning to be with God in eternity. But we're locked in this world. We're separated from God, and that deep longing is still in us. It's in all of us, and we desperately want to satisfy that longing and so we look to all these things instead of our Creator. We look to our relationships. We look to our jobs. We look to our lifestyles. We look to our fame. We look to independence. Whatever it is we value, we, tend, we try to suck meaning and purpose out of that, trying to fill this yearning we have for God. And when we do that, those good things that God has given us, like relationships and jobs and wealth, those become bad things. They become idols, actually. And those idols don't fulfill us either, do they? They actually want to consume us. And when we seek to slake our thirst for the Creator on those idols, it changes a healthy desire to an addiction. And like all addictions, it doesn't satisfy. It may temporarily give you some sort of euphoria, but it can't satisfy. And it will consume you and make you miserable. You see, we here at Trinity, this part of God's church that meets here, we fall into those addictions. We fall into those idols because we're not crazy enough about each other. We don't believe that we can fulfill that yearning here, and so we go look for it there. We don't yearn for each other the way we should, and so we miss out. I just want to be very candid what I'm trying to say here being very personal, it is not enough for me to have God only through the Bible because God also embodies Himself in His church, His bride. I need to be loved by each of you to reinforce the truth that God loves me. Y'all need to be loved by each other to reinforce the truth that God loves you. Because in a real community, we experience the gospel with each other. Here's what I mean. Conflicts are resolved. Peace usually reigns. Forgiveness is shown. Because that reinforces the reality that what? Our conflict with God has been resolved through the gospel. Peace reigns because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness has been shown because Jesus' blood has bought it. Those gospel realities are planted right here and we live them out with each other and it enforces their reality. Hear this, my fellow Americans. We need to hear this. Christianity is a team sport. It is not an individual thing only. That's why in the kids' translations, we are going to see over and over again, until you're sick of it, the word y'all. Because Y-O-U in the book of Philippians is plural. And when you and I read that, because we're Americans, we don't think we, do we? We think me. We read that singular. Paul is talking to me. No, Paul is talking to the body together. We need each other. Paul's yearning here is one who's been sidelined. But he's still cheering on the team to win. He's still encouraging them. Do you see yourself as part of a family? And do you yearn to be on the team? That's what Paul's getting at here. I mean, imagine how awesome Trinity could be if we believed this, if we actually lived in that kind of yearning for each other. If we will aim the longing of our hearts that we all have, if we will aim that yearning at God and at His church, it would satisfy us. It would give us the peaceful joy we want so bad. And really, that's actually what this table right here is all about. Christ fulfills our deepest longings as bread and and wine does our thirst. He fulfills that longing through offering communion with himself. But this is also communion with each other, the fellowship of the body. That's what this meal is about. Fellowship with Christ together and fellowship together. Because we need it to realize the gospel. So what do you take home with this? Just to wrap up, let me give you two things to take home with this. This table... And this idea of yearning for each other should change the way we think about evangelism and outreach. We're to demonstrate the gospel to each other as family, which means that we need to invite folk to be around our family. We need need to invite them over to dinner at, at our house as a family and let them come see how our family treats each other. That's really what evangelism looks like. And so invite people to Trinity, not to experience the worship, not to see the student ministry, not to see how big our mission's budget is, certainly not to hear me. Invite them to see how crazy we are about each other. And that will mess people up, and they will want that. And then they'll put up with me and the worship and everything else. Let Orangeburg see your love for each other. Evangelism is like inviting your friends over for dinner. The church is a feast celebration, especially on Communion Sundays. So bring Christians to the party. Or excuse me, bring non Christians to the party. So start next week. Bring a friend. And second, and we'll go home. Are you part of a normal family like this? Would you like to know that God will complete? a great work in your life well then ask him to start one confess Jesus as Lord place your faith and trust in him alone and you will be made part of our family and God himself will do a great work in your life man if that resonates with you don't wait do it now and you can be part of a messed up crazy family just like us and we'd love to have you let's pray together (laughs) Oh, Father God, we do thank you and praise you because you have shown us grace through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that your gospel goes forth often in spite of our lack of love for each other. But Lord, we ask that you would give us this Holy Spirit-inspired, yearning love for each other. We pray that you would make us into that crazy community and that it would change our city. And Lord, we ask that you would do your work of salvation even now, that you would begin a good work in some folk and that you would bring it to completion. We ask, Lord, that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.